Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome today to the Royal College of Surgeons, uh, particularly the Hunterian Museum, uh, for the last of our lunchtime lectures, which are in the theme of Lost, to go with our exhibition, London's Lost Museums. And today, of course, you've come to find out about London's lost property. And I'm very pleased to be able to introduce Dr. Elizabeth Hurran, who is a reader in history of medicine at uh, Oxford Brookes University and a leading authority in the area of the history of anatomy and dissection and the poor law, of which you will be speaking today. Uh, before I get off the mic, though, I'd just like to say that the library have very kindly put together an interesting display along the theme of today's lecture, which is available for you to see in the library on the first floor. So if you are going to make your way up to the museum to see the exhibition that's there, do please stop off in at the library, and they will keep it going after this lecture, so you've got time to have a look. Thank you. Uh, hello, everyone. I hope you can hear me on the mic. Let's just check that first. Good. Okay. Um, I'm going to sort of move around a little bit today. Um, it's lovely for me to be here, let me say that straight away at the beginning, because as I hope I'm going to share with you today, a lot of the research that I've been doing has actually been in the streets around the area that we're currently in, and I think that's, uh, I hope, going to be rather fascinating. Um, I'm an historian of anatomy and the body and of dissection and of the poor, and one needs to be actually an historian of all of those things in order to study what I'm going to share with you, which is how the poor were used for dissection at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. St. Bartholomew's, of course, was uh, the major teaching hospital in London in the Victorian period, and indeed the fourth largest in Britain. So it's a significant place uh, in order to um, conduct uh, such a study. We're very fortunate because the dissection records of St. Bartholomew's, unlike those of other medical schools, have not survived. And um, I'm very, always very grateful and always mention Keir Waddington, who first alerted me to these um, some time ago, about seven or eight years ago. But I'm not just interested in my research in, if you like, the dead body. I've been trying to very carefully reconstruct the lives of these people because I'm very interested in the lost property of those lives, the types of historical voices that historians have always wanted to engage with, but we have found it impossible because uh, these people had an oral culture. They didn't write very much down. And so one has to engage with a very wide variety of what I call record linkage work, and I'm going to show you the results of that record linkage work, which has taken me about seven years because I've tried to be very meticulous about doing it. So the figures and the statistics and the graphs and the stories that I'm going to show you, I would emphasize to you they are conservative figures, very conservative, because unless I'm absolutely sure, it hasn't made it into my book. And that's coming out, uh, will be finally be published in November of this year, and it's called Dying for Victorian Medicine. And it's going to show what essentially helped medicine to expand in the Victorian period, which was an unwritten, what I call, business of anatomy an economy of supply in the dead poor, which operated not just in the capital, but also in the provinces. And it, above all, relied on two things. One, body dealers on the street buying and selling these bodies, and there was a lot of profit made on the bodies, and I'll discuss that as we go through. And then if you were outside London, you needed the railway, because there were something called the dead trains. And at the back of the... Uh, railway carriages were carriages for the dead. The dead were put in what was known as a double deal box. This was made of cheap pine wood. It was a double box so that the human material, which was obviously decomposing, didn't leak. And this would then be shipped down to the anatomy schools, waiting on the very eager medical students who needed to get hold um, of bodies. And so what actually happens is most anatomists get on the train in the Victorian era and they stop off at all the fast train links throughout England, and they try to make body deals with workhouses, infirmaries, and coroners, uh, classically. And again, I've been tracing those in the book. But I'm going to talk less about those today and more about the body dealers on the streets of London, because obviously St. Bartholomew's had an enormous population surrounding it, roughly speaking, there were, as the annual register points out in the Victorian period, there were about 24 million people who would move through the Holborn area, for example, in any given year. That's an enormous number of people, and you would obviously expect a significant proportion of them to die. 
because it's an age of death, dearth, and disease. And so these body dealers were there to try to buy and sell the poor. Okay, so let's start with the anatomist in the 18th century. As I'm sure many of you know in this uh, room, anatomists traditionally were given the bodies of uh, criminals. Uh, these were taken after murder cases, and they were handed over, of course, to be dissected at Surgeon's Hall. And, of course, unfortunately, the murder rate never kept pace with the demand for bodies. People would not commit more murders. They were needed. And so classically, of course, the anatomists then started to have to buy into a black economy in the dead. And this was rather easy in London because, of course, at the time, there were a number of overfilled churchyards. Um, we know this from quite a wide variety um, of source material, but probably one of the most interesting is the um, evidence from William Blake, who used to look out on a slaughterhouse at the back of his home, and he was able to see the dead bodies, which were in basically be buried classically 12 deep in very, very thin layers of soil and lime. And so, as you can imagine, it was quite easy to actually nip along and uh, grab a body. Anatomists also um, became... Uh, therefore, subjects of ridicule, and we have a, I've just picked a, a classic sort of image, and the idea being that an anatomist would sort of saw off anything and stick it in his pocket as he was uh, walking past um, the graveyard. Well, it wasn't quite um, as bad as that, but certainly they were uh, short of human material. Classically, as both of these um, quotes illustrate, <laughs> it was always very hard to get hold of a woman. Balzac classically uh, thought that uh, one should have always dissected a woman um, before one married her. Perhaps Prince William uh, should be advised of that before Friday. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like to inquire. Um, Henry van Dyke Carter, who was the illustrator of Gray's Anatomy, though, really starts to give away in 1858, around the time of the Medical Act, the real things that were actually happening in terms of uh, the economy of supply in London because, in fact, there was as big a trade in body parts as there was in whole bodies, something I'm, I'll, I'll expand upon as I go through. But this is a classic entry from his diary, which is now at the Wellcome Trust, got two eyes, got kidney and heart, had offer of brain, but declined. And in fact, out of the back of most hospitals where operative surgeries were carried out, one could, as a medical student, slip the porter a sixpence, and he would have wrapped up, usually in some bandages for you with a little bit of chemical, um, an arm or a leg or indeed a brain. And that wasn't just common in London. It was very common, for example, in Oxford. One would have got a brain at the back of the Radcliffe Infirmary quite uh, easily. So what happens then to, if you like, the use of those for dissection at Surgeon's Hall? Well, in 1832, after a number of scandals about resurrectionism, and above all, concern by Parliament that the rich and the poor were being used for dissection and that they were being exhumed and sold at night, they decided to pass the Anatomy Act of 1832. And the Anatomy Act of 1832 does essentially one thing. It says that you must pay your welfare debt to society by being dissected if your family can't afford a pauper funeral. Under the Act, you technically had six weeks in order to makeshift your meagre economy, in order to fund a pauper funeral. And very classically, people would beg on the streets with a charitable letter. And they would also hold a funeral raffle, for example, in a local pub. That was quite common as well. And it was typically women and children who would beg for the pauper funeral. Um, and the idea would also be that you would employ a number of delaying tactics. So you would really harrow the coroner. And you would say to the coroner, oh, no, 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 we can't hand over the body. No, we couldn't possibly hand over the body for at least a week uh, for you to have a look at. That would, oh, no, no, no. Or we're not sure what the body actually is. Or um, as one um, correspondent told the Daily News in 1840, I'm still sleeping with the body. I couldn't possibly let the body go. <laughs> so you would use any and every means that you could to delay the body, as it were. Um, and again, the idea being that you were trying to uh, find a, uh, the money to actually bury it. But of course, the reality is that the six weeks never held, and most people had six hours, um, because that's how fast the body dealers on the street would be after uh, the body. This is a, 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 ch chalk and draw, uh, a chalk and pen drawing 
and it was used as advertising material to attract students into the medical profession, particularly St. Bartholomew's, and it's very classic for its uh, time. One sees, of course, the nubile female body on the dissection table, and classically, of course, one has the different orders of medicine um, and their uh, learning, skill, and book, and, of course, above, the symbol of enlightenment and rationality, all the sort of symbols one uh, would expect. This is the reality, however, of an actual dissection, and it was pretty harrowing, I have to say. There's no latex, no suction tube, uh, it's pretty crude, and under the Anatomy Act, um, this body should have been very carefully labelled and then given um, a Christian service with a great deal of dignity by placing it in the ground. Well, anatomists did do that. I have never found a single instance where there was not a Christian burial. But it would, be not, it would not be true to say that this body would be left anywhere near intact when it went into the ground, because it would be dissected classically over the Victorian period, um, the early period, for about 48 to 72 hours. By the late Victorian period, when preservation techniques had improved, they could be dissecting it for up to a year until, quote, only the extremities remained entire and there was nothing left, unquote. So, um, in reality, it was quite a harrowing experience, actually, to be a medical student, and many medical students left the profession because of dissection. Classically, of course, Charles Darwin did. He couldn't cope with it. That's why Charles Darwin left Edinburgh and went down to Cambridge. He found it quite gruesome. And you can see here, it's pretty grim. I mean, this is the bucket to collect the human material and the blood that flows, depending on how um, fresh the corpse is. If one cut into the stomach, as you know, and the person had eaten, and it was a very fresh body, and you did it without skill, that um, would be rather noxious. So classically, medical students would have smoked, uh, usually marijuana, uh, in, the, uh, in the room, and um, they wore pretty crude, um, actually, um, outfits, usually that could be washed down um, quite quickly. So what sort of person were they actually buying? Well, let me share just one story out of very many. They bought an awful lot of prostitutes on the streets. Um, here I've just picked the example of uh, Sarah Ashton, who was 24 in, on the 8th of March, 1835, and she lived here in Holborn. She lived at 109 Grays in Road. Sarah was a servant, and she looked after the household. And one day at noon, she opened the door of uh, her lodging house, and on the door was a woman who was aged 25. And she said, um, I understand, she said, that you've been um, walking out uh, with my lover called Richard Sutton, and I'm here to tell you that we've just had the bands read at Bloomsbury Church and we're getting married in a week's time. The problem was Sarah Ashton was four months pregnant at the time as she told Martha Clark, the charwoman, who worked alongside her in the lodging house. So Sarah was very frightened and she had no family. She was a servant who'd come to London and she didn't know what she was going to do. Well, she did that classic thing. She first of all tried to procure a an abortion, she tried to have a miscarriage, and when that didn't work, she swallowed a whole vial of oxalic acid, and she committed suicide. In the subsequent um, coroner's case, um, carried out by Mr. Payne, the city coroner for St. Bartholomew's, in the dead house at St. Bartholomew's, um, all of the story then came out. Sarah had, in fact, been pregnant once before. She'd had a concealed birth. She had met her lover, Thomas, and she thought he was her sweetheart. She'd been walking out with him, actually, for about 18 months, and she thought that he would make her, quote, a better woman. And, of course, he wasn't, because he was running, in fact, three women at the same time. Mr. Um, Payne, the coroner, said it was most base, in fact, that he was running with three women at the same time, and he wished the law did actually allow him to prosecute her uh, uh, for such an offence. But, of course, you can only pay, uh, prosecute for a breach of promise if you're alive, not dead. So um, uh, her lover, Thomas, uh, got off scot-free. And, of course, this is a 24-year-old woman, four months pregnant. She's highly valuable. She's got no family to give her a pauper funeral. And so she sold on, like many um, servants, the servant class in London, to St. Bartholomew's. And, in fact, this is what makes St. Bartholomew's so unusual. There are a very high number of young women and young men sold to St. Bartholomew's. And this is why 
as a medical student, you pay to go to St. Bart's compared to any other hospital in London or indeed any other hospital in the provinces. When I first collated the data together, I was really surprised at how young they were. On average, between 20 and 30 years of age. And that means, obviously, that you're looking at a very good anatomy when it's on the dissection table. Now, it's very difficult to know the number of prostitutes that were actually on the streets of London. And you, you can see that there's sort of very, very different estimates here. Um, I think, actually, the evangelist estimate is more accurate. It was somewhere, somewhere around the 80,000 mark. Um, the sample of bodies that I looked at, I looked at a sample of 6,000 from St. Bart's, and these were actually classically um, the age ranges, and these are much, much lower than one would get uh, anywhere else in terms of age. Also, turnover. They don't seem to have had any problem getting the number of bodies that they actually needed. There was always the opportunity to dissect, and you needed to dissect basically two bodies in two years, to get your medical qualifications and to register with, of course, the General Medical Council once you were actually qualified. So again, education is expensive and you need to be sure you're going to have access to those particular bodies. This is what it would have uh, looked like um, and I'm just going to show you a variety of the photographs. Unfortunately, we don't have an actual photograph of St. Bartholomew's but it was described as a miserable, cold sort of shed it was so cold inside that, in fact, you used to have to nip out and actually warm yourself up and then sort of run back in again and actually dissect. And we know that from diaries of medical students at the time. But here is a, an example um, of a dissection room in Edinburgh University, um, very typical with the, the bodies laid out, usually six in a row, as you can see here. No windows, of course, because you don't want the general public looking in, just usually a skylight at the top. And then these pillars both support the building, but they're also act as usually ventilation shafts. And occasionally one sees um, some heating in the room, but not generally. This is UCL in London. Again, one can see here uh, a female in the more advanced stages of dissection, and then obviously the classic sort of anatomical um, textbook images around the room uh, in order for the students to compare. And notice again, he's smoking tobacco. And again, this would have probably been marijuana. This is Cambridge University dissection room. This was one of the more advanced dissection rooms at the time. Again, one sees the classic layout. Here we have a body wrapped in the chemical uh, bandages. Again, it's the classic skylight. Uh, these windows were actually blocked up on the outside, the reason being that there was an anatomy riot in Cambridge and the uh, uh, people of Cambridge objected very much to what was going on. Now, classically, of course, they would have bought a high number of the bodies from um, the lodging houses, particularly around Smithfield area. Of course, St. Bartholomew's is, is near Smithfield. And um, generally speaking, um, people bought and slept four to a bed. There's three here. But it would have been, on average, four to a bed around Smithfield. And you paid somewhere between tuppence to sixpence a night, depending on uh, what um, you um, could afford, and um, often a prostitute would walk the streets. They would have sex with a, uh, a man or woman, depending whether it's a male or female prostitute, and they would then use that to actually get a bed for the night in one of these lodging houses. Now, it's important, you, I mean, it's an obvious point, but they're um, places of high contagion because of how close you're sleeping together, um, how concentrated uh, you are, poor drainage. Um, no sewage, no uh, sort of drinking water. So you can imagine why this would be quite useful. So St. Bartholomew's therefore has a long tradition from the 12th century right through um, to our uh, more modern times of actually taking in the poor. And this is the actual poor box, which is still outside King Henry VIII's gate. And one would have been encouraged in the Smithfield area to in fact leave the poor at the gate. If you could, you would put a donation in the poor box if not, then they would have taken in the dead person for you. Um, classically, they often took them in because of very bad weather conditions, <laughs> would you believe? Um, in 1833, um, there was a massive thunderstorm in London in July. It was a very hot, sultry summer, in fact. And a lot of people were struck by lightning on the streets, and they ended up immediately being sold into the body trade. In 1836, there was a hurricane, and part of the top of the Bank of England fell off 
onto people in the street, and quite a lot of people were injured because, of course, the horses skidded, and you can imagine there was sort of chaos. And again, those bodies were taken into St. Bartholomew's, into the emergency room. If they died unclaimed, then they were going to be uh, sold on by uh, nightfall. St. Bartholomew's also had an abnormalities and deformities uh, register. And a lot of, in fact, anatomy schools were doing this from quite um, an early stage, and they were very influenced by continental um, uh, style of anatomy and morbid anatomy in particular and comparative anatomy. And, of course, in the museum upstairs, which I was in just before I came down, one can see you know, a large number of the specimens there that they were doing. But Bartholomew's was becomes much more systemized, and particularly around the late Victorian period. And you can see that the curator of the museum is to draw up a record of all the specimens which are being dissected and which can be sent um, to the post-mortem room. Classically, what would happen is a body would come into the um, hospital, the body would die, the beetles would then take the body at night down to the dissection room. Medical students would be waiting, and they would be waiting in a queue, to dissect the body. The demonstrator of anatomy who was on duty would have looked at the body, and if it was, say, the case of Sarah Ashton, where she's a very valuable female and she's pregnant, he would then mark a large L beside her body, and that would be tied to the body and put in the dissection register. Now, what that means is, is that that body's going to feature in the lecture hall the following morning, and it also means that the demonstrator uh, in anatomy, and particularly in morbid anatomy, is then going to take, for example, the miscarriage and is going to uh, preserve it and, and place it then in the anatomy museum. And again, upstairs, one can see um, examples um, of this um, being done. So in Bartholomew's, there has quite a large turnover of people, so it's really able to start to build up um, its uh, collection. Typically, this is uh, a drawing. I, there are a number I could have picked. I, um, some can be a bit gruesome, but they were very interested, for example, in Siamese twins. Um, they're very interested in abnormalities and deformities in children full stop. And you could see why they would be, because we're at the beginnings of what will be, by the turn of the century, start to be the science of embryology with the growth of laboratory medicine. And uh, so uh, here is an opportunity with these women who've died in order to see why uh, um, they have had a number of childbirth problems. They also bought on the streets an awful lot of stillbirths. And this is why the records are so valuable at St. Bartholomew's, because um, not before the uh, registration of the Stillbirths Act of 1926 did one actually need to get a doctor to actually sign that you'd had a stillbirth before you um, would bury uh, the uh, uh, stillbirth or miscarriage, depending on how advanced um, the um, embryo was and whether you'd had a full labor or not. Um, Classically, of course, most women had um, uh, an abortion or a spontaneous abortion in the privy in the Victorian period. And, of course, we know from a lot of record work that a lot of women who actually tried to procure an abortion did so in the privy because it was the one place that was actually private. And this is one of the problems when one's looking, for example, at infanticide uh, cases in coroner's records, is trying to decide was it a spontaneous uh, uh, miscarriage or was it, in fact, uh, a woman trying to procure an abortion. Well, obviously, anatomists are very interested in that because they want to study the secret of life. They always have done. They want to study uh, the abnormalities and deformities. And these are just a couple of the bodies that I picked it, uh, out from the uh, sample. In fact, they bought an awful lot from the east end of London. Um, and there was a body dealer on the street called E.E. E. Llewellyn. And this body dealer um, would purchase these stillbirth children. And Elizabeth Wakefields and, indeed, Susan Miles were neighbours. And, as you can see, in 1856, uh, they were both prostitutes in the east end of London, and they um, were uh, 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 keen, I suppose, to sell on and make some money from a rather tragic situation because these stillbirths could generate quite a lot of money. Uh, Sometimes it could be as much as six months' wages. This was a very uh, lucrative uh, thing uh, to do. And it would also be done very discreetly, generally at night, and there's always an intermediary uh, uh, who does it. The stillbirths were 
dissected within 48 hours and always buried, and they're always buried by the same person. The hospital is very, very sensitive about children's stillbirths and, and, uh, and the use of that human material. I have to say that's true actually throughout the whole of England. There's always, always a very high uh, degree of sensitivity um, about that. Well, these are the bodies um, and how um, they were kind of bought and sold over the course of the Victorian period. And it's quite interesting because you can see, and they had complaints, that their body supply actually went up and it went down and then it'd go up again and uh, then um, it would go um, down. So what I'm going to do is not, um, not sort of get involved in too much, but I do want to, to share with you some of the trends because the things that are happening in the background economy affect medical education in ways that we've not actually thought about before. First of all, these are the bodies that I um, actually traced. And the first big new finding is that, in fact, although Inatum has said they had a lot of trouble getting bodies, that was not actually true because they were buying... 125 cadavers in the 1830s, settling down to about 108, 81. But these were entirely adequate for their needs. They were never in short supply of the number of bodies that they needed. And that's something that they lied about. They were always telling central government that they needed more, when in fact the Anatomy Act initially gave them exactly what they needed. And the reason it did was because of the poor law. The Anatomy Act was passed in 1832 and the Poor Law in 1834. And historians of medicine now quite firmly agree that these two pieces of legislation work together. Basically, you had to come into a workhouse in order to get care. And you were encouraged to do so for a whole variety of reasons. If you were pregnant, for example, you would go to the workhouse and you would give birth. If you needed medical care, you were also encouraged to go to the workhouse to get that. If you were perhaps unemployed, again, you would go in um, for an, a period of unemployment. But the workhouse, as we know, was very much resented. It was a symbol of stigmatization. It was a cultural slur on your family. And most people would therefore only turn up really rather late to a workhouse. And so classically, it was often too late in order for the workhouse to be able to do anything to help you. And so many people died within workhouses uh, in the Victorian period. And particularly in London, these are enormous workhouses. And if we take Marylebone, for example, the workhouse population of Marylebone by the mid-Victorian uh, uh, period is on average 1,500 people. And there are two, that's two, doctors, <laughs> very overworked doctors, who have to look after 1,500 sick people. And you can imagine how often they can actually get round to even physically see them, let alone take their case histories and you know, prescribe adequate treatment. So, essentially, therefore, these two um, very much uh, work together. Then, in the 1840s and 1860s, again, historians had always thought that the trade just went woof, straight down. Well, it didn't, actually. It averaged out about uh, 60 a year. And with the Medical Act being passed in 1858, the average went up again to about 83 cadavers, and then in the 1860s sort of dropped down to about 60. And again, from, from St. Bartholomew's point of view, that was actually quite adequate for its needs. Ideally, it might have wanted one or two more, maybe, in particular seasons, but in general, it got what it actually needed. And again, um, it's quite important to, um, uh, for us to appreciate, I think, the scale of this uh, business. Then in the late Victorian period, and by the late Victorian period, the poor law had actually become more generous. It gave um, a small allowance, it was a dole basically, uh, which was known as outdoor relief. And outdoor relief was just a small payment. Sometimes it could be in kind, someone could help you pay your rent. They sometimes give you food, um, bread, meat, to feed you up a little bit, uh, medicines, maybe a little bit of alcohol for pain relief. Um, sometimes, though, it was more generous than that. It actually helped a workman get new tools so he could get back to work. But the expenditure of the poor law just went up and up and up, and central government began to get very worried about its welfare bill. And it argued, this is going to sound very familiar, that charities should take over our welfare in a version of the big society. Political ideas are never anything new. And 
So the idea was that outdoor relief, that's doles at home, would be cut, and everybody, the disabled, the infirm, the sick, the pregnant, would have to come into the workhouse. So all that leniency that had developed in the long period just was stopped. Now this is absolutely superb for anatomists because their body count goes up almost 50%. If anything helped the expansion of medical education in this country, it was the policy of limiting welfare. Because again, people are coming into larger workhouses, higher rates of contagion, they're coming later than they ideally should do, more of them are dying, and um, across London, there's no doubt, and everywhere and every single medical school in Britain that I've studied all benefited roughly by about the same amount. That's absolutely consistent. So if you take welfare away from people, their basic welfare rights, then you are going to create higher levels of poverty in those who fall below that threshold of what I call relative to absolute poverty. I'm talking about people who cannot climb out and will never climb out of absolute um, poverty. And the reason this was really helpful was because the Medical Act was actually, of course, extended in 1885. And if you wanted to, for example, train in midwifery, and I'm standing in the Royal College of Surgeons, if uh, the surgeons themselves expanded the qualifications that, they actually, that you actually needed, constantly, of course, professionalising, then you needed more bodies to do so. And it was also very helpful that the poor law at the same time said, I think also we're giving far too much medical relief to the poor. I know, because the medical doctors need pass their act, why don't we stop medical relief also outside the workhouse completely and uh, make people come in for that too. And again, one can see the poor law legislation and medical legislation literally working in parallel all the time through the Victorian period. The problems actually come at the end of the Victorian period because of local democracy. And of course, once people get the vote, particularly in poor law elections, they start to want to... Um, have more of a say in the welfare system. So, anatomists go to asylums. Asylums have been very reluctant, in fact, to sell their dead bodies, and they become now much more open to doing so. And the reason they do is because there was a rating change. Asylums had always been rated according to agricultural values. This was very sensible because many of them were built in the green belt, outside towns and cities, in agricultural land. But around 1900, the, the Treasury, bless them, thought, I know, we could get more money out of asylums. They're now full up. Let's look at how we actually rate them. And so they decided to rate asylums on commercial lines, now that they've actually come into the suburbs of towns and cities. Well, the problem was that this meant their rates went up four times, and so asylums were therefore prepared to sell more bodies to offset their increase in rates. So it's always money that's kind of driving this business and the saving of costs. But old age pensions, of course, disrupts it again because you don't need to come into the workhouse if you're getting an old age pension. Many of you who have read um, Lark Rise to Candleford by Flora Thompson will know she's thrilled at the pensions and the fact that you can go along now at 70 and get your pension at the post office. One thing that's interesting in St. Bartholomew's is that World War I did not ser seriously disrupt their supplies and, um, indeed, they were very much helped by the fact that in the 1920s, workhouses became council-run uh, uh, homes. And at least until the 1960s in the intersection registers that I've seen around the country, those um, council homes are, were still the main sources of um, dead bodies um, in the records that I've looked at. So why does all this matter? Well... Um, it matters because we've never really had an accurate body count. And the body count for the Victorian period is 125,000 people bought and sold. And I would say to you that's whole bodies. The body trade was at least the same. So we're talking roughly about 250,000 transactions happening uh, within this um, body business. We always thought that there were about 57,000 bodies traded in London. And I'm being really conservative here. There were a minimum of 60,000 and probably another 60,000 body parts that were traded as well. So, again, much bigger scale um, than we ever uh, thought before. And this is where they're coming from. This is an operation in a workhouse uh, infirmary. 
Infirmaries are expanding next to workhouses, and it's all part of what we now think of as the rise of the early welfare state experience. Um, here's a, a sort of uh, a classic, and of course, the first um, uses of uh, chloroform uh, that they were using. Here is a boy that was bought in Holborn. Holborn Workhouse was a major centre of body dealing. The boy is sent down to St Bartholomew's because the surgeons there are very good um, at um, serious diseases of the femur, as you can see, and they're wondering whether if he has to have an amputation, it would be better that it's actually done. It's St Bartholomew's done in Holborn Workhouse. And, of course, that's quite right. It, it would have been better done at St Bartholomew's, much more skilled. But he goes on to talk about the fact that it would be very useful um, for them uh, medical students to work at the dispensary in St. Luke's in Clerkenwell and to help generally the medical officers in the area. And indeed what happened to the Holborn boy was that he was, it was amputated his arm and his arm entered the supply chain and a medical student paid two, pounds and, uh, two shillings and sixpence for the boy's arm. And that was given to his family. So these are the bodies then that they um, bought decade um, on decade. And again, you can see no problem in the early period, adequate for their needs, huge rise when medicine expands again, and again then sort of fading out. And it's really in the 20s that one sees the real problems in body supply. So who is supplying them? Who are these body dealers? Well, I'm going to give you um, an example of Robert Hogg, the undertaker. Robert Hogg ended up in the Old Bailey in 1858 and he was charged on 69 counts of procuring bodies and selling them to St Guy's Hospital. I think it would be fair to say he was as guilty as hell. 69 was rather an understatement actually of what Mr Robert Hogg was actually doing. Um, what Hogg would do is uh, uh, someone would die, maybe myself in my 40s, and Hogg would go along to the relatives at Newington Workhouse um, in an area now known as the Elephant and Castle. That's the area I'm talking about. And he would say, oh yes, you can come along and see your loved one in the dead house of the workhouse tomorrow, but it has to be tomorrow. So people would leave. And classically, the poor would try to make shift whatever they could to um, put into the coffin. So they would usually at least come back with a backless shroud or a piece of cotton to wrap the body in. But, of course, when they came back the next day, the coffin would already be nailed down. And uh, the relatives would say, but I really, really want to see that my relative is in the coffin. He said, don't worry, we've chalked his name on the coffin on the front. So they would check that it was chalked. And then they would walk behind Robert Hogg, the undertaker, uh, to the burial. The problem was it wasn't actually their loved one in the coffin because they'd swapped it for a dead body that had died that night in the workhouse, usually someone elderly, because they'd sold on the younger person, someone like myself, to St Guy's Hospital around the corner. And all the time, they were sort of constantly shuffling all of these bodies in order to sell the right number of ages and age groupings and sex uh, to St Guy's Hospital. Now, Robert Hogg is really interesting because he is found guilty uh, uh, at the Old Bailey, but he turns state witness in return for immunity from prosecution. And so the person who's really found guilty is... Uh, the master of the workhouse, uh, a man called Albert Feist. But even Feist gets off on appeal because it's in nobody's interest in central government to actually allow this body trade to come to light. And so Albert Feist simply quietly retires. And Robert Hogg just goes quiet and emerges up as a body dealer at St. Bartholomew's Hospital within a very uh, few short years. And these are some of the places that he was actually then dealing with. And I've traced them all. Uh, through the records, and he had a really extensive business across London. He very rarely buried them, even though he called himself an undertaker, and it's, a, uh, it's one of those cases where one has to be really careful about how people describe themselves within this body business, because those descriptions are often highly inaccurate. What Robert Hogg actually did is he would sell on his undertaking, the actual burial, to another undertaker, and he would then just make money um, of the um, actual bodies. So here's the street geography of what he's actually doing. And these body dealers are buying a huge amount from pool infirmaries and workhouses across London. Interestingly, they buy a lot in the early period from St Bartholomew's Hospital itself. But as you can see in the later period, that 
declines quite steeply because the hospital becomes very worried about getting a bad reputation for using the poor. What that actually means is you have to go out onto the street, therefore, surrounding, in the streets surrounding St. Bartholomew's and in, into the West End and the East End in order to make up that shortfall from the actual uh, uh, wards. And so there are more and more body dealers who are actually in the employ um, of their um, uh, business. So these are their main uh, sort of, uh, their big uh, sort of suppliers. And you can see that quite a lot of them are the ones that are actually surrounding, in this Holborn area, the actual hospital itself. But, of course, they also go into Whitechapel in the East End um, because prostitution, for example, was very high uh, in the East End of London. And um, similarly, they went into the West End, into Marleybone, where I mentioned, and, of course, in St George's Hanover Square um, as well. So Holborn basically supplied 35% of the dead that were dissected um, at uh, St. Bartholomew's. But there was one street that supplied, in fact, about 34% of the dead in Holborn, and that was Buckridge Street. In Holborn at the time was an area known as Little Ireland, and this was an area of lodging houses, beggars, dens, thieves... In fact, it was said that the lodging houses on Buckridge Street were connected to other streets nearby because they would tunnel down underneath the lodging houses so that the thieves could run from the police at night between one court and the next. And equally, um, the body dealers were standing at the end of the street <coughs> waiting to buy bodies that died on the street at night. Typically at St Bartholomew's, they would go up at night, the body dealer, like Robert Hogg, and he would collect a large laundry basket, a big wicker one, it would be about this high, and it would be on wheels. And he would wheel it down to the Holborn area, and it just looked like he was supplying the hospital with laundry. And he was taking it down to the laundry in Holborn. But of course, underneath the laundry were all the bodies. So he would stand at the end of the street, Buckridge Street, and he would wait until... A prostitute like Anne Gearing, age 47, who died in 1847, who had um, quite a long street life as a prostitute, and she died on the street, and he bought her body for uh, 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 three pounds from a cu another couple of prostitutes in the street, and he then put her body into the wicker basket, put the laundry over the top, and then wheeled her up at night, and she was dissected within 72 hours. He also bought male prostitutes. Um, we know that um, there were a number of young men, typically around age 17, who actually also bought um, on the street. And it's worth remembering that there was male and female prostitution at the time. And the reason that some, he was able to do this so regularly is, as you can see, in an 1841 census of Buckridge Street, there were 655 people living uh, in these uh, courts and lodging houses. When they tried to slum clear the area... By 1847, um, basically, the poor didn't go very far. They just moved to the next street and got denser and denser and denser. Um, so typically, then, the next street along would then just fill up, so you'd get 50% more uh, people uh, living together. I've mentioned Whitechapel already. About 11% came from there. Again, mostly prostitutes. Uh, in Marleybone, I've mentioned the large workhouse there about 10%, and St George's Hanover Square. The surprising new finding is that 60% of those who were bought in, this, in the whole sample, um, ethnicity plays a very large part in the body business. A large number were Italians and the Irish. And this is quite interesting, because, of course, the majority of them would have been Roman Catholic, and it would have offended their cultural sensibilities to have the body cut. But the reality of poverty is that when you're in absolute poverty and all you have is your body to sell, then uh, that's what uh, you will do. So, as you can see, well, um, the St. Bartholomew's Hospital Ward in the early period, very important. Um, they bought less from fever hospitals for very obvious reasons, because if you nick with a lancet a fever patient, you could actually get contaminated and die. And so typically, for example, diphtheria, uh, was um, something that killed surgeons quite a lot in this period. In the very early period, they'd have been worried about cholera and typhus, um, etc. They um, buy less than you would think from um, other hospitals. Um, they tend to then go um, onto the actual streets to make up any supply that they've got. Um, 
It's not been possible to trace every single body bought on the street, but I have been able to trace home deaths made with body dealers in the actual area of the hospital. And um, someone like Robert Hogg, these are uh, his figures, uh, Robert Hogg was selling about sort of 210 to, um, uh, to uh, St. Bart's. But, of course, he's also dealing with St. Thomas's, he's dealing with St. Mary's, though he never again deals with St. Guy's. He's not silly. He's not going to go back to where um, he's actually being uh, caught from. So this is um, what the body trade looked like um, on the ground. These are all the areas that they bought from, the big uh, areas of supply. This is a very big supply. This is where Robert Hogg was buying from. The East End, all of the unions. A little bit from Islington, um, out as you'd expect, towards the sort of North London area. Uh, less from Chelsea and Kensington, but they did buy um, from uh, those areas. What about men and women? Because I've been mentioning men and women uh, to you. Well, uh, the darker are the female, and the lighter are uh, the male figures. And uh, certainly in the early period, um, as I said, they uh, bought them in equal numbers. But as we go through the um, Victorian period, they start to... Um, uh, get more men uh, than uh, females. And there's a very simple reason for doing this. Um, females um, were actually largely regarded as more flexible in terms of their earning potential. A woman can go on the streets. A grandmother can earn money um, doing cooking, mending, washing, childcare. And so families actually valued the sort of work that a woman could do. In other words, a woman was generally contributing to the family economy in what historians call calculative reciprocity. So they were functioning part of that economy. Whereas it is true that on the whole, I'm afraid, chaps, you regard, men were regarded as a spent force by 52. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, and it was regarded generally that men needed more care. And so the reality was that it was very expensive to keep a man at home when he's not contributing to a meagre family economy, so he would be sent to the workhouse much quicker. And the result of that was that by the late 19th century, men were being dissected in much higher numbers. Generally, the ratio is three to one. And that's also true um, of the uh, provinces um, as well. So again, um, I flashed up some of the age range. What one sees is this category going up a lot in the late Victorian period. More people in this category. In the early period, it was these categories. But always, always, this is the category that they're really very interested in and they pay very high numbers uh, and amounts for. What about the diseases of the destitute? Well, the anatomists at St. Bart's are quite unusual. They call it, copy the style of Parisian medicine in terms of their morbid anatomy. And although it's always very dangerous for an historian to, as it were, deal in retrospective diagnosis, and I would always caution against it, these were um, the um, broad diseases that the anatomists, after they'd done the dissection, decided that the poor had actually died of. And what's very interesting is that regardless of the improvements in public health in the late 19th century, slum clearances, better drainage, better housing, all that, um, if you like, miasma and contagion that we were concerned about, it was respiratory diseases, the ability to breathe a decent bit of air that actually really mattered when you were in absolute poverty. So classically, asthma, pneumonia, general lung disease, TB, uh, this is as it was known at the time. This was the big killer in the destitute. This, was the, this is a sort of new finding. Um, when I was reading um, uh, uh, Howard's End by Ian Foster. I don't know if you remember Howard's End, but I remember the film. The character in it, Leonard Bast, um, has a fantasy, and he, uh, he's a lonely clerk in a bank, and he's married an ex He's not, sorry, he's living with an ex-prostitute in a very poor area of London. And he has this fantasy one night that he walks out of London into the bluebell woods of Kent. Who can blame him? They look probably very beautiful at the moment. And he tells the uh, Schlegel girls about how wonderful this is, and they say, oh, that's so romantic, it's wonderful, you have a, a romantic soul. It wasn't really until I looked at these figures that I realised that actually Leonard Bast did need to walk out to the Bluebell Woods of Kent because if he stayed in his area and in his social class, his chances of actually dying of a respiratory disease, even in 1900, were still very, very high. And that's what um, this evidence um, shows 
uh, quite clearly uh, uh, here. And here I'm going to um, end. This is a skyograph. It's the first X-ray that was published in the British Medical Journal in February 1896. It would be fair to say that it is a symbol of modern medicine and that, I'm sure, there isn't a single person in this room that doesn't know someone that hasn't benefited from X-ray technology. But it's also a pauper child. And it's worth remembering that in images that we take for granted, the history of medical imagery and, and the whole history that I've been speaking about, there's often a complex story underneath it. Because, you see, skyograph technology was very uncertain up until the 1940s. Even today, as you know, if you go for an X-ray, they, they will say to you, don't move your arm, don't move it, keep it still. Because, of course, you can shake, uh, a slight shake will blur the image quite easily. So it was always much easier to photograph the small trunk of a child than it was to do an adult body when they were perfecting the skyograph technology. Um, and, indeed, there were many pauper children who um, were um, photographed uh, in this way and then sent for um, uh, dissection. Similarly, the same pauper children were also used for early tissue culture work, which today, in Afghanistan, for example, the um, amazing uh, uh, technology that they're using out there with the, the remote surgical um, um, techniques by satellite, again, that was perfected in the, in the 1910s using pauper children, actually, who were, once they were dissected, they were dismembered, and then they were using some of the human tissue that was available. So I, I, I want to end here because I think it's worth remembering that um, the advances that were made and then the lost history, if you like, that kind of goes um, uh, in, in hand with it. In other words, we need to take a kind of a balanced view of this business of anatomy and looking underneath sort of appreciate how we um, needed the poor, um, but also maybe then think about the ways and the ethical issues that we, of where we are today because the second fastest growing business on the internet today, the first being pornography, but the second is the trade in dead bodies by those in, for example, uh, India and even in the United States today. There's a very, very big problem in areas where the economy was very high um, and very vibrant. Um, for, for example, where the car industry is, they've had a lot of problem actually burying people on the streets and philanthropists have actually had to come in and um, fill in that gap. Obviously, with organ donation, um, today it's quite different. But again, um, we know that that has implications in poorer communities. So in a way, it's a history that still runs in parallel and still asks us lots of, I think, quite interesting questions. Thank you. Does anybody have any questions? Um, the, um, hmm. the demonstrator in anatomy's job was to tally up the number of bodies that were bought. Uh, the porters at the hospital or the beadles would actually pay for the bodies. And then the medical students um, had that added to their education fees. So um, they would simply then tot up and say, you know, Elizabeth Huron dissected. Well, it wouldn't be Elizabeth Huron because I'm a woman. But uh, <laughs> uh, she dissected, you know, this number of parts or bodies. So they would simply have added that to the the terms fee, basically. Um, why couldn't the people who sell the bodies direct to the hospital leave out the middleman? Very good question. They sometimes did, but you risked um, being socially ostracised in your community. Um, it was a great uh, religious and cultural and social stigma to be involved in this. Um, and so um, they would have been, they preferred to deal with the intermediary who they trusted. And it would have been done at night, and the intermediary then would have taken the body. Um, also, there was, these are people in absolute poverty. And when you are in absolute poverty, the thing that you actually need is the money in your hand. And it's very hard to refuse a body dealer who's saying to you, here's sixpence to eat when you haven't eaten. Um, or do you want to risk walking all the way up to the hospital um, and actually being seen in your community? So it's a kind of a bit of both, really. Hi. Yes, there is a museum there. It's quite a good one. Um, they're always very amenable to, um, for people to go in and have a look. Um, there's a small um, medical collection 
collection, and there's quite a fascinating history of the hospital itself, because it's a very old hospital. I mean, it's been providing medical care for the poorest in London since the 12th century. Um, so, yes, it's open. I think it's open four days a week at the moment. There's also an archive there, which I've worked in, and, um, again, if you have a genuine sort of interest, they're always very open to that. Uh, very long periods of time. Um, the Anatomy Inspectorate, which basically, if you like, technically policed the Anatomy Act, although in reality there was a lot of leniency within the system, um, they did though try to keep an eye on body dealers. Um, so Mr. Hewitt was a body dealer from Holborn Asylum, uh, sorry, Holborn Workhouse, and he was described by the Anatomy Inspectorate in the 1840s as a very, very um, reliable and um, enthusiastic man. Uh, who had um, uh, bought a high number of bodies uh, for various hospitals. So they were sort of keeping an eye on them. Once you were trusted and you'd been operating for three or four years, then, you know, the hospital would keep coming back to you, particularly if you were discreet, you know, if you, if you managed it um, in a kind of discreet way, because above all, they must avoid bad publicity. That must be avoided. You think they have? <laughs> there are still body dealers on the internet today um, not in Britain because that would contravene the Human Tissue Act obviously um, but um, body dealers were still used up until the 1960s and were generally a contact in a care home if you died intestate in a care home uh, that is with no family the executor of your will automatically became the owner of the care home and you know, and a, a funeral even today in let's say Cambridge that costs £3,000 and so is a cremation so in order to offset the cost of your care, which, as we all know, is so high in care homes, and to keep the limit on your estate, then in the 60s it was quite common for the care home to act as the body dealer. That is a lovely question, and I wish I could answer it. <laughs> um, I, the problem is they don't write that down. I mean, that's the worst crime that you can be involved in. Um, I, what I can say to you is that I have found a number of nurses from infirmaries that were involved in the trade, which suggests to me that maybe women who came into the workhouse late, maybe the nurse in the infirmary was acting as a go-between. I'm trying to do more work on it at the moment. Um, it is true that the anatomists tried to buy near what they called molly houses, um, so where prostitutes gathered. Um, I know, for example, in Cambridge, they had a, a very famous molly house called the Spinning House, which the university authorities kept a very great deal of, um, of um, eye on and policed. Um, and in, um, uh, there, it's easier to trace, if you like. But I couldn't say that I found written down evidence, no, because I just think they would have been too wary of actually doing that. I would love to find a diary or something, but I suspect I'm never going to. Yeah. Because of the well, because of the legislation, because effectively what the legislation does is it legalizes an illegal trade. Um, it doesn't say the trade is wrong. It just says we need to target the trade at the poor. So, and you know, the argument was fairly standard. If you have received welfare, then you should repay your welfare debt to society. One of the problems we have in Britain is that we've tended to be too secretive about this. We haven't gone down the, the model in France, for example, and um, our it's often called, historians call it the altruistic mod model of body donation. And, and because of all the secrecy, it tended to create um, a sense in which everybody should uh, cooperate to say very little. And what happens in that process is that it gives the body dealers quite a lot of authority, actually. Um, whereas if the anatomists, actually, I should say themselves, wanted to be much more open by the Victorian period. 
And by 1912, they were actually arguing that these bodies should be given over in the national interest and it should be all open. You know, they themselves didn't want to be in this position. And they very much regretted um, having to constantly go around the country buying from what were really unscrupulous sources. Um, so, um, but the, the impact really of the legislation itself was, was the really big key because the body dealers didn't have to hide. They didn't have to run down to the graveyard. They just had to be at the back door of the workhouse and the infirmary. Yes, it was exhumation that was offensive, but it was predominantly the exhumation of the rich and the middle classes that was offensive, not the exhumation or the use of the poor. That was the big sort of change. And that was really the reason behind the act in 1832, actually. The famous um, murders of Burke and Hare were just rather useful catalysts, moral panics, if you like, um, in order to bring the act in. But the, the, you know, there was a sea change there in that it would be specifically the poor that were targeted. It's lovely. I think that's everyone's questions. Um, a huge thank you to Dr. Huron for coming today and giving this fascinated talk. Um, if I could do a small round of applause again, if you want to. And I'd just like to remind everyone, we still have one more lecture in this series. It's not a lunchtime lecture, it's an evening lecture, which is Philip Davis from English Heritage talking about uh, lost London with particular reference to, again, the area around Hoban. And that is on the 9th of June at 7pm. So if you're not already signed up for that, do do so. And again, our exhibition, London's Lost Museums, is upstairs on the top floor of the museum. And we have the display in the library um, that accompanies this uh, talk. Thank you all very much for coming today. <laughs>